In the beginning, there was darkness, and God created light. We saw his face illuminated, and we knew him. But then, as sin entered our hearts, we turned from him and plunged ourselves back into darkness. Our view of God grew dimmer and dimmer as we fled further away. We lost sight of his true character. The God we once saw shining bright in majesty became hidden from us by the lies we surrounded ourselves with. But even in the darkness, our God is in control. Even through our questioning, our God is ruler over creation and unchanging amidst our confusion. He is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth, infinite in understanding. And we are blessed when we seek his face. Our love is deeper when we know the God of eternal love. Our worship is sweeter when we recognize the holiness of the author of life itself, when the lies and the mystery fall away. We know the truth about God. Hey, Cornwall Church, it is so good to have you join us again this week on the live stream. Glad that you're with us. I just got to say, I miss you guys. I mean, I'm glad that I get to be with you in your home, on your tablets, and your phones, and your televisions, but I miss you guys. And I thought maybe today, as we start off, we would greet one another because we can't do that here. And if you're watching with family, you can greet one another. If you're watching by yourself, there's the online chat. You can greet one another. But I want us to greet each other in a unique way. This one's got a little bit of Star Wars, a little bit of Governor Jay Inslee, and a little bit of Catholic tradition. So this is what we're going to do because of what has been announced this week. You're going to say this, may the 4th be with you, and then you'll respond with, and uh, as well with you, or however the Catholic response is that, may the 4th be with you, and uh, with you as well. So go ahead and greet one another, and if you don't have someone to greet, go ahead and greet uh, Pastor Kip. He's on the chat. Uh, that would be great. It is good to be back together uh, today, and I tell you what, Zoom has become my new best friend. I can connect with our pastors, with different people in prayer groups, uh, connect, connect with my family, with our small group. And, uh, and just to be able to have some kind of interaction. And today, as we continue on in our series, I want to do what I've been doing uh, every week, and that is to start off with a word out of Scripture that gives us hope and encouragement in our current reality. And today, the Scripture I want to look at is something that Jesus said to his disciples when they were facing an uncertain future, when they were scared, where they were filled with anxiety, when they had some hardships that they were going to face, very similar to where we are right now in our world. And these incredible words of Jesus out of John chapter 16, where he said this, I have told you these things, so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. 
And what I love about this is that Jesus doesn't deny the fact that we are in this world, this world where it's broken, where things aren't working, where there's viruses, where there's economic downturns, where there's hardships. And he says, hey, here's the truth. In this world, you will have trouble. While he acknowledges that, he also reminds them that that's not the full extent of their reality because they are in this world truly, but also they are in Christ. We are in Christ. And he says, because you are in me, there's peace. I'm the prince of peace. The peace of Christ will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And because of that, he has overcome the world. We can have that peace. And so I wanted this uh, to be our verse to start with today as we continue on in our world, in our uncertainty, in our economic uh, downturns, in our difficulties, to know that there's peace with Jesus Christ and he has overcome the world. We can hold on to that truth. And speaking of truth, seamless segue, we are in this series, The Truth About God. And if you've been with us throughout this series, we started months ago. It was mid-February, back when we could eat together in restaurants, where we could play together in the gym or uh, you know, in, in the playground or on the field, where we could watch movies together in a theater, where we could worship together in this room, where we could hug freely. Oh, I miss the good old days. But back then, we started this series, and we looked at a verse out of Jeremiah. Jeremiah said this. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, or the strong man boast of his strength, or the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast about this. He says, now listen, you might be smart, you might be strong, you might be successful, that's all great, but this is what's really most important. This is what's worth putting your energy and effort towards, and this is what our series is all about. Let him boast about this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord. And for eight weeks, that's what we've been doing, growing in our understanding and our knowledge of who God is. And we've just scratched the surface. And I'm just going to tell you, for me personally, and my role in this, this is how I feel. I feel like I have the rudimentary building blocks of arithmetic. And it's been called upon me, it's been tasked to me to teach calculus, linear algebra, differential equations, and all the deepest theories of mathematics. Like, I don't even have the capacity. Now, here's the good news, is that because of this subject matter of the, the truth about God is so vast, I can spend the rest of my life learning and never exhaust all there is to know, to never plumb fully the depths of the truth about God. And maybe, this is speculation, and maybe well into eternity, that even in eternity, it won't be all of a sudden I know everything, but maybe I will continue to learn and grow and discover because of the immensity of God and his goodness. And that's not where Jeremiah stops because he goes on and he says this, that he knows, understands and knows me that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth for in these I delight, declares the Lord. And this is where we're going today. This becomes our focus, that God is involved on the earth and he's exercising kindness, justice, and righteousness. And I want us to look at another attribute of our great God. To start us off with this, I want to look at a, maybe a familiar uh, piece of scripture out of the book of Psalms. Maybe you have sung these words. Maybe you've heard them. Maybe you've memorized them. Psalm chapter 8, verse 1 says this. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. And he's talking about God and how majestic his name is. 
you know, in, in the creation and beyond the cosmos, uh, on this terrestrial ball, in, this, in the celestial realms. But he starts off and he says, O Lord, our Lord. Now, if you were with us last week, you know that there's a, a Hebrew literary tool that is used repetition to show emphasis. We talked about this last week where Jesus would say, truly, truly, like this repetition. Um, or uh, specifically last week when we looked at God and it says, holy, holy, holy holy three times in a row that's like this big emphasis or like if you grew up watching the Brady Bunch when Jan got frustrated it was Marsha 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 it was like this is really emphasized when it says oh lord our lord this is not using that repetition tool as you see these words are are spelled a little different not not with the, the words but not with the letters but how the words are shown they're different because one of them is a name and one of them is a title it would be like me coming home after the, the end of my day, walking in our home, and I say, oh, Doreen, my wonderful wife. One is her name, one is the title. It's like if you saw me and you said, oh, Bob, our long-winded pastor. <laughs> one is my name, and the other is, uh, well, an untruth that's said about me. Oh, it's horrible. Okay, but it's a title. So when it says, oh, Lord, our Lord, there's a name when it's all caps that's Yahweh, and we'll look at this more uh, in the next couple weeks and then this summer when we, when we look at the, the life of Moses where God says that at the burning bush, I am that I am. But the other one, and I hinted at this one last week, the other one, Lord, with the lowercase letters is the word Adonai. And when you use that word Lord in Adonai, it has this idea of sovereign, that God is sovereign. And there's, there is what we're gonna talk about today, the sovereignty of God. And before we get into it, I just need to tell you, when you start talking about the sovereignty of God, that's like an, like an umbrella attribute with all of these different topics underneath it. Yes, God is sovereign. But when you're talking about sovereignty, it gets into discussions about, about like providence versus chance, free will versus predestination. And if it's predestination, am I responsible or is it a fulfillment of what God has? What do you do with evil in the world? Did God cause that? Does he allow it? And I'll just say on this one, on the sovereignty of God, honestly, I could talk about this for hours. There's so much that I'm learning, so much that the word of God says. I could go, could go on. You remember two weeks ago when I preached for 57 minutes? I mean, I'm not gonna try to break that record, but I could have that one pale in comparison to, to talking about this today. We are definitely in the deep end, but today I'm not even saying we're swimming in the deep end. We're just gonna kind of splash in the deep end because I wanna hit some of these topics. We're not gonna be able to go to them in depth. The good news is Pastor Kip is online in the chat. So if you're chatting, he's right over here. He'll just answer all your questions. Every theological question you ever had, uh, he'll answer. So uh, we've got that. But I want us to talk about this idea of God being sovereign. What does it even mean? When we talk about God being sovereign, the sovereignty of God. Well, the sovereignty of God holds basically this idea. God's absolute authority and rule over his creation. His absolute authority and rule over his creation. Which means simply this, that God is in control. And because God is in control, that everything is under control. It might seem like it's out of control, but with God who is in control, who has absolute authority and rule over his creation, he is in control, it's under control. He never gets caught off guard. He never gets surprised saying, what are we gonna do? He's never scurrying around. He, he never panics. 
<laughs> you know, years ago, there was a song um, called One Week. Uh, some of you will remember this. The bridge had this really cool little thing, Chickadee China, the Chinese chicken, you grab a drumstick and your brain stops ticking, watching X-Files with a lifetime. Anyway, there was a line that said this. Like Harrison Ford, I'm getting frantic. Harrison Ford can get frantic. You can get frantic. The whole world can get frantic. God never gets frantic because he has absolute authority and rule over his creation. He is in control. And because of that, it's under his control. Now, this is in complete, exact opposite um, understanding of what some would say is deism. There are some, uh, very often scientists and uh, physicists and biologists, who would say, yeah, I, I'm a deist, which basically believes there is a prime mover. There is intelligent design. Our world displays that, obviously. This wasn't just accident. This wasn't just chance. The deist would say, yeah, God is the prime mover, whatever, whoever, whatever that is, that there is this power that started it all, wound it up and got it going, pushed play, hit on, whatever it was, started the power button, but then walked away. The deist would say there is a God who created it, but is not engaged, is not involved, is not a part of it, it walks away unaware, un uh, uncaring, not involved at all. Throughout scripture, you see just the opposite of that again and again and again. That God is involved, that he is caring, that he is aware, that he is fully engaged. You know, there's a, that phrase, uh, the devil is in the details. Well, when you're talking about this world, God is in the details. Let me just remind you, in your own life, with you, not just in the world, but it, with you. In Psalm 139, where the psalmist talks about that God has searched us and he knows us. I mean, he knows our coming and our going. He knows when we sit, sit down, when we stand up. He knows our thoughts. Even before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, oh Lord. He knows what we're going to say even before we say it. That he formed us in our mother's womb. He knew us while we were still being created. That all the days ordained for us were written into his book before one of them came to be. God is very much in the details of our life. In Matthew, when Jesus said, even the very hairs of your head are numbered. Not just there's a number of how many. They each have a number. In Psalm 56, where we see this beautiful picture of a caring God, he says, when you cry, that God saves every tear in his bottle and he records it in his journal. He's aware. Or in Isaiah, where God says, I have inscribed your name, I've written your name in the palm of my hand. And not just in your life, but in our world, in Isaiah, where it says God calls out the stars by name. We can't even count them, and he knows all their names. That God is very much involved in his creation. There was a time when David was the king of Israel, and the nation of Israel had responded uh, in, in a huge way to build a temple for God. And in re, uh, reaction to the response of the people, David prays and sings this prayer in 1 Chronicles, and you see this picture of the sovereignty of God with absolute authority and rule over his creation. 1 Chronicles, it says this. Yours, O Lord, and that's that name, Yahweh, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor. For everything in heaven and on earth is yours. So on this one, when he's saying everything in heaven and earth is yours, there's this ownership of all things. That's part of being sovereign. He's the owner of all things. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. 
You're exalted as head over all. You know, that, that you have the authority over all things. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and to give strength to all things. That God, you are the source for all things. So you see the, the, the sovereignty of God here, that, that he is the owner of all things. He is the authority over all things, and he is the source for all things. That this whole world, everything in it, is his, and he has authority and rule over his creation for his plans and for his purposes. And God has plans and he has purposes that he's bringing about in our world and out throughout history and in the cosmos for his glory. The psalmist writes this in Psalm 33. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations. That God has some plans and he has some purposes. Now the interesting thing about this is God's plans and purposes aren't just, you know, pipe dreams and hopes and wishes that somewhere down the road that this might happen. He says, I've got these plans and I've got these purposes and I'm working to bring them about in our world and in our lives. I mean, some of you, your favorite verse is Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. A little side note. I think sometimes we want God to be sovereign in our world but not our life. Let me explain that. We want God to have absolute rule and authority over the world. We want his plan and his purposes for his glory to happen in our world. But in our lives, I want to do my plans and my purposes. And I, let me have absolute rule and authority over my life. So I want God to be sovereign out there, but not here. Which, if you think about this, in the words of Spock, that's highly illogical. I mean, if, if what we've been studying about God is true, that he is all-powerful, that he's all-knowing, that he's the supreme being, that he's in a category of one, that he's altogether good, he's infinitely loving towards you, he wants the very best for you, why would you ever not want to be under his rule and authority if he knows everything, can do everything, and wants the very best for you? All right. We could talk on and on and on about the sovereignty of God, but I want to push pause there as we go on and splash at another little area of the deep end. And I want to talk about something again under this umbrella of sovereignty about how and why things happen. And this really comes down to kind of that discussion or trying to understand fate versus providence. Fate versus providence. The whole concept of fate, and call it what you will, uh, chance, um, you know, uh, luck, uh, karma, um, destiny, uh, you know, what, just kind of these, these things that just happen, coincidence. That would be the whole idea of fate, that, that these things just happen. Versus this concept of providence, that like God is involved with this. You know, I, I first started thinking about this, and again, some of you, this will take you way back, in 1988. Michael, Michael W. Smith had this album called Eye to Eye. And on that album, there was a song called The Hand of Providence. And I remember listening to that song. And I remember starting to wonder, how does this whole thing with the providential hand work? The providential hand of God. It's often referred to as the invisible hand of God. That maybe things don't just randomly happen by chance and luck. And that maybe God's hand is at work. And he's moving and he's guiding and he's directing and he's orchestrating things for his glory, this hand of providence of God that is making a difference in changing things in our world. 
Charles uh, Spurgeon was talking about this concept of, of fate and, uh, and providence, and he said this, fate is blind, providence has eyes. This fate is just this, this things that happen. That's why we carry rabbit's foots. That's why we pick four-leaf clovers. That's why we knock on wood. That's why we cross our fingers. That's why we don't walk under a ladder and, and watch out for black cats and stay away from broken mirrors and all these things, this superstition of this, this fate, this blind fate out there that things just happen to us or providence, that providence has eyes because there's a sovereign God who has his hand at work in our lives. Instead of trying to explain this, let me illustrate this for you. In 1 Kings chapter 22, there's a very interesting story about Ahab. Unlike was sung years ago, he was not an Arab. This was Ahab was the king of Israel. You can read this on your own, 1 Kings 22. Ahab teamed up with Jehoshaphat, who was the king of Judah, and they were going to go to war against a nation called Aram. And the problem was Aram really didn't like Ahab. And for good reason. He was not a good guy. I mean, a very wicked, evil guy. Before they went into battle, it was suggested, why don't you go talk to the prophet of God and see what he has to say? So they go to this guy. His name is Micaiah. And Ahab says, I don't like Micaiah. Every time I go to him, he gives me prophecies. And they're never good prophecies about me which I would think, Ahab, if you're always getting bad negative prophecies about you, look in the mirror. Maybe there's something you ought to change. So they go to Micaiah. He says, yeah, yeah, go to battle, whatever, it's fine. And they said, no, 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 tell us the truth. And Micaiah says, okay, it's not a good thing. You go into battle, people are going to be scattered. You're going to lose. It's going to be horrible. Ahab says, see, see, that's why I don't like this guy. He, he, always, he always prophesies bad again. Put him in a, in a prison cell, give him nothing but bread or water. I'll deal with him when I come back. And, and Micaiah says, listen, you're not coming back. You go into battle, you will not come back. And if you do come back, then I'm a false prophet. Ahab says, get him out of here. Ahab says, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to disguise me. Jehoshaphat, you dress up like the king. I'll just put on armor like, like one of the other soldiers. And we'll go to battle. That way they won't come after me because they hate me. So they go into battle and the king of Aram sends 32 chariots and, and uh, fighting men in. When they realize that Ahab is not the king, they're going to walk away. Here's what's so crazy about this story. As they're getting ready to walk away, a random, nameless soldier from Aram says, we came all the way out here. This is a little bit of my, uh, I'm expanding on this a little bit. He pulls an arrow out of his quiver. He knocks it onto his bow. He pulls back at a 45 degree angle and says, this is just for fun. And let's go the shot that's heard around the world. He lets an arrow go at random, not aiming at anyone or anything, just this group of people. And as this arrow begins to travel at a 45 degree angle, and then the earth's gravitational pull begins to drag it back down and the trajectory of this arrow comes back down. Well, there's all of these places it could have landed. It hit one soldier. And while the soldier was completely armed, it happened to find one little spot where the armor did not meet and the arrow went in. And this one soldier happened to be King Ahab who was disguised as just one of the many. Bad luck, 
bad karma, bummer dude, or the providential hand of God saying, I'm in control here. I'm at work. This isn't happenstance. This isn't bad luck. This is my work. Look what it says in Proverbs 16, 9. In his heart, a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. We can say we're gonna do all this. We can make this plan. We can be disguised. We can hide in there, have this armor, everything that we've got it all figured out, but the sovereign providential hand of God is still at work. Or how about this one? When the Babylonians came and took the exiles from Israel, you know, when Daniel was taken as a young man and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, there was also another young man named Mordecai. He and his family were taken to Babylon as well. And Mordecai had an aunt and uncle who had a little girl. And she was quite a bit younger. Her name was Hadassah quite a bit younger than Mordecai. And her parents died, we don't know the details, while she was a little girl. So she becomes a little orphan girl. And Mordecai, her older cousin, takes her in and raises her as if she were his own. While he's her cousin, he's almost more like an uncle, and he takes the role as her dad. Well, King Xerxes has this queen named Vashti, and Vashti has this failed attempt at an early women's movement that didn't go well for her or the ladies there. And so she's taken out of her queenship, and so there's this new queen search uh, through all of Babylon. This young girl, Hadessa, is now a, a very beautiful young lady and goes by the name Esther, and she enters into this queen search, and she wins. She becomes the queen. It's an amazing thing. What good luck as fate had it? What chance could this have been? And one day, her older cousin, Mordecai, overhears a story about some guys that are trying to assassinate the king, their plans to assassinate the king. And he lets this be known, and they investigate it, and sure enough, the king is saved, and that is recorded in the Chronicles of the King. And years later, a man named uh, Haman is uh, elevated, number two, Mordecai will not bow down to him. And Haman realizes that Mordecai is a Jew. And he says, all these Jews need to be exterminated. All, not just Mordecai, all of them. And word of this comes. And Mordecai says to his young cousin, Esther, listen, if you don't go to the king, all of our people will be killed and you're not going to escape it either. And he makes this statement. And who knows but that you were brought to royal position for such a time as this. What if all this wasn't just good luck? What if this wasn't just a chance? What if this wasn't just fate? What if this wasn't random? What if God had this all preordained in order that you could save your people? And it just so happens that the king is hit with insomnia one night. And he says, why don't, why don't you read the chronicles of my kingdom? Maybe that'll put me to sleep. And when he does, they read about this man, Mordecai, who was actually the one that had saved his life. And he said, did we ever do anything for Mordecai? I said, no. Well, we, we never promoted him? No. We never gave him a reward? No. Nothing? No chocolates? No applets and collets? Come on, nothing? Nothing. And it changes the whole course of the story. Just luck? Just coincidence? Proverbs 21 says this, 
The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a water course wherever he pleases. God says, I've been involved. My providential hand is at work through all of this. You say, well, those are great stories from the Old Testament. A lot of fun. How about it for us? Well, look at this out of Philippians chapter 2. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. That God is working in our lives as well. That he is sovereign. And his providential hand is moving and orchestrating things in our life. It's not just random chance. It's not just fate. It's not just as luck would have it. Job talks about this in Job uh, 42. He says to God, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. God, if, if it's your plan, it's gonna happen. It's not just, oh, I'm gonna keep my fingers crossed and hope it works out or if I can get at least three quarters of it done. He says, no, I know that no plan of yours can be thwarted. Or, or this one out of Isaiah, I am God and there's no other. I am God and there's none like me. I make know the, known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. Why? Because he's sovereign and he has absolute authority and rule over his creation. Now again, we could go on and on with this, but let's stop and splash another part of the deep end of the water. Because this would bring up the questions that many of you might be asking right now. So if that's true, if this invisible providential hand of God is at working even in my life, then do I have any free will or is it all predestined? And if it's all predestined, how can I ever be held accountable for anything I've ever done if it was already scripted out for me? How can I be held responsible for that? 10 months ago, when we started our series in Ephesians last summer, I spent a, a fair amount of time on this. You can go back in the archives and watch that if you want. But it talked about, one of the things I talked about was this, this passage out of Acts chapter 13, where Peter is preaching to these people, and he says, you killed the author of life. You asked for Barabbas, a murderer, and you killed Jesus. You did this, your choice, your decision. But God raised him from the dead, and this fulfilled what God had said through all the prophets. So repent. It's like, wait, 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 wait a second. Yeah, we know we did this, but you're saying that was fulfilling God's prophecy, and now I'm supposed to repent for something that was fulfilling the prophecy? How does all that work out? And if it's all preordained and predestined, then can I be held responsible for anything? And here's as simple as I can make it, is the truth about this, is that you are free, and God has a plan. You are free to make choices. You're free to make decisions. And there are consequences, and there are ramifications, and there's responsibility that comes with your choices and with your decisions. And God has a plan and has a way of working even through our decisions for his purposes and his plans and his glory. Andy Stanley uh, said it kind of concise this way. He says, God is in control, but not controlling. God is in control, he's sovereign, but he's not controlling. He's not gonna control every decision, every thought, every choice you have to make but he is in control and his sovereign providential hand is great enough that he can orchestrate this around for his purposes. 
Um, A.W. Tozer used this illustration, and, and it works to a certain degree, not completely, as in most illustrations along this line. He said, take, for instance, an ocean liner that leaves New York for England, and it's going to go across the Atlantic, and we'll get there down the way. As it's going to England, on the ocean liner are people, and they have all kinds of decisions they can make. Do they want to play shuffleboard? Do they want to read a book? Do they want to play Scrabble? Do they want to go to a concert? Do they want to watch a movie? Do they want to go to the buffet? Do they want to take a nap? Do they want to walk on the deck? They can make all the decisions they want. But the ocean liner is still going to London. Their decisions are there, but God is still at work. One of probably the best pictures of this in the Old Testament is the story of Joseph out of Genesis. You may remember that story. His dad, Jacob, has 12 sons, but he favors Joseph. He, it's, and it's obvious. He, he, he's not too subtle about this. And on top of that, Joseph has these crazy dreams about his brothers bowing down to them, and he's dumb enough to tell his brothers about these dreams. And then one day, while they're all wearing sackcloth, Jacob gives Joseph this incredible coat, this coat that's finely ornamented in many colors, whatever it might be. And his brother said, that's it, that's enough. This, th this takes the cake, we're done, we're done with this. And their jealousy and their anger just rages within them. So Joseph comes out to check on them. They're all hardworking, Joseph's in with his new coat. Joseph comes out to check on them and they say, hey, here comes that dreamer, Joseph. So they capture him. You know, and they harass him like older brothers often do. They take off his coat and they decide, let's kill him like older brothers shouldn't do. And, and so there's one of them, uh, Reuben, who says, hey, hey, wait, 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 wait. Okay, let's not kill him. Let's just hold off on the killing part. So they throw him down in a pit and they says, well, let's have lunch. While they're having lunch, there just so happens, as fate has it, lucky there happens to be a caravan of Ishmaelites. These are like their distant relatives. They share a great grandfather. And Reuben says, I've got an idea, or Judah, excuse me. Judah says, I've got an idea. Let's not kill him. Let's sell him. I mean, after all, he is our brother. How benevolent. So they pull him out and they just happen to sell him to these Ishmaelites who take him to Egypt. And when they auction this young Hebrew slave now, there just happens to be a man named Potiphar, and he buys it, has the highest bid, takes him home. And Potiphar just happens to have this desperate housewife who lives with him. And as Joseph is young and, and strong and, and good to look at, she makes some overtures, and they're rejected. And there's no fury like, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. And so she fabricates some lies and some deceit, and he gets arrested, and he gets thrown into prison. But in prison, he meets the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker, and he interprets their dream. And as they get out, he says, don't forget me down here. And they forget. And he stays in prison until one day, Pharaoh has a dream. And no one can interpret it. And someone says, I remember a guy when I was in prison. And they go back, as luck would have it, to Joseph. And he interprets the Pharaoh's dream. And it's about a famine and about years of plenty and years of, that are lean. And, and he's elevated to the prime minister position. And he, he stores up all of these, these stores for seven years. And then a great famine not just hits that area, but hits the entire region. 
to where his brothers and his father have nothing, and they hear that Egypt has food. And they come down, and the long story short, he finally reveals himself as their brother. Jacob and all the brothers, they all move down there. Years later, Jacob dies, and all the brothers are scared to death. Rightfully so. Now that dad is gone, what is Joseph going to do to us? After all that we've done to him, after those years he spent in prison, after we sold him, after we threatened, after we lied to our dad about him, all of these things, what is he going to do? And they go to him, they plead with him that have grace and mercy. And here in Genesis chapter 50, verse 19, it says, but Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. He doesn't somehow say, oh, it's no big deal. It was, it was, it was all good. He says, no, what you did was evil. You, you wanted to harm me. You wanted to get rid of me. You wanted me to die. You wanted me to never be heard from again. You told dad you intended to harm me. That was wrong. But the hand the providential hand of our sovereign God took even your evil decisions, your choices, the circumstances, and wove them around for good that lives would be saved. What I love about the story of Joseph is when he's in prison, when he's in Egypt, when he's lied about, when he's facing injustice, hardships, difficulties, over and over again, Scripture says, and the Lord was with him. Sometimes we think if there's difficulties in life, hardships in life, injustices were faced, that God must have abandoned us. No, no, no. God was right there with Joseph the whole time, lining up all the pieces, working together the plan, orchestrating it all. Because God, in his sovereignty, in his providence, can work in and with and through the choices and decisions. And he doesn't, with a magic wand, suddenly make things that are bad good. He says, I can turn those things that are bad and I can weave them around for my purposes. The best illustration of this happens this coming weekend. In just a few days, we'll observe what is known as Good Friday. Why they call that good? On that day, the darkest evil ever perpetrated on the human race, on human history, takes place. The crucifixion of Jesus. And yet God turns that around, the darkest day of all history. And he weaves it in for his purposes to bring salvation for us. Judas, Caiaphas, Pilate, Herod, the Pharisees, the crowds, the Roman guards, they all meant it for evil. They all meant it to harm. And God says, I know, it was a horrible thing. But I can use it for my purposes and for my plan and for good. Now, with our sovereign God, his providential hand at work in our lives, the fact that he has a plan and purpose. Let's bring this down to us. Because this God that we're studying, remember, is the God who is not just transcendent, but he's imminent. He's right here with us. 
and the comfort and the hope and the confidence that we can have knowing that our God is sovereign for us. We begin to see, and let me just point out a, a couple of the benefits that we can have pulled out of Romans chapter eight. And one is, is our, our God's sovereign purpose, not just in the world, but in our lives as well. Not just what he's doing in the cosmos, not just what he's doing in human history, but in your life, in my life. In Romans 8, 28, where it says, and we know that in all things, not just the good things, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. That God takes even the bad things of our life. He doesn't cause them. He doesn't say they're wonderful. He doesn't say, oh, I wish all those bad things were bad. He says, in all things, I can work them around for good. They're not good, but I can bring good out of it for those that love him and are called in accordance to his purpose, not our purposes. And it may not happen in our timing. I mean, I think about Joseph, how many times he was sitting week after week, month after month, year after year in that prison thinking, God, have you abandoned me? And God was with him the whole time saying, I'm working, you just wait. And growing up, my dad used to sing this song. And the chorus says, farther along, we'll know all about it. Farther along, we'll understand why. Cheer up, my brother. Live in the sunshine. We'll understand it all by and by. It's having this unswerving conviction that God is in control, that he is sovereign and he's at work and he will bring it about for my good and for his glory. I may not see it. It may be years from now. I may not fully understand it, but there will come a day. And on that day, I'll say, oh, you were at work. You're sovereign. Not only that, but we have our, our God's sovereign protection, his protection in our life. Romans 3, 20, uh, 31, uh, 8, 31 says, what then shall we say in response to this? You know, that God is involved, that he's sovereign, that he's providential, that he's choosing us. If God is for us, <laughs> Who can be against us? You know, this is a rhetorical question. He's not saying, hey, give me a list of the names that can be against us. He says, no, no, no. If this God that we've been studying is who we say he is in a category of one, this transcendent one, this one that is above all, this one that is over all, the, the creator, the uncreated one, the sustainer of all things, this all-powerful, all-knowing God, if he is who he is, who can be against us if he's for us? It's a rhetorical question. And not only that, but it's our God's sovereign provision for us. In verse 32, he says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? I mean, after what God has already done, spared no expense for our salvation, you think, well, I'm gonna cheap out on the rest of it? Are you kidding me? This sovereign God says, I have a plan for you. I have a purpose for you. I'm at work in your life. You trust me. You know, we're in a season where there's a lot of fear and a lot of anxiety, maybe even depression. And I get that because of the circumstances. The psalmist wrote these words, why why so downcast, O oh my soul? He's talking to himself. Why so downcast, O oh my soul? 
Put your hope in God. You know, our elders every day have been praying Psalm 91 for our church. And I want you to just see what your elders are praying for you every single day in this season. Just the first two verses, Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. One of the things that I noticed about these verses is the different ways he references our sovereign God. Most high, almighty, Lord, God. They're all different words, the names and the titles of God. This most high, this Elyon, the almighty, Shaddai, Lord, Yahweh, God, Elohim. He says, this God of ours, who's most high, he's almighty. He's the name above all names. He's the, the this self-existent one. I can trust in him. And this sovereign God of ours, whose hand is at work, who has absolute authority and rule over all of his creation, who is providentially working in your life, even taking your decisions and weaving them around for his purposes in your life, who will take even the bad things that happen in your life and bring about good. With that God, we have confidence, hope, strength, joy, courage, even in a season like this. That's our God.